Hi everyone, welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn Waco North. The Hampton Inn Waco North encourages you to visit Waco, Texas and the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. And when you visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, book your stay at the Hampton Inn Waco North. I'm your host, Jackson Michael, author of The Game Before the Money and writer-director of We Were the Oilers, The Love You Blue Era. This episode is In the Locker Room with Gene Stallings. We'll take a look into the life and career of Texas Sports Hall of Famer, Gene Stallings. Gene Stallings played college football at Texas A&M and was one of the famous Junction Boys under Bear Bryant. He later became an assistant coach at Alabama under Bear Bryant before taking over head coaching duties at Texas A&M, where he won the Southwest Conference Championship in 1967. He later went on to be a secondary coach with the Dallas Cowboys. He was on Coach Landry's staff when they won Super Bowl XII and made appearances in Super Bowl X and Super Bowl XIII. He later became head coach at the University of Alabama, guiding the Crimson Tide to the 1992 National Championship. Gene Stallings earned a legacy both on and off the field, and the early roots of his legacy are in Paris, Texas, where his high school football coach was a well-respected man. The head football coach, Ryman Berry, was probably one of the most respected people in Paris, and he was an outstanding high school football coach, had good football teams, but he as a man was respected, and the bottom line, if Coach Berry said it, it didn't go any further than that. So what a joy it was to be able to play for Coach Berry. Coach Berry's son also created his own legacy. Coach Berry's son was Raymond Emmett Berry, and he was a senior when I was a freshman. Raymond was captain of the football team in his senior year, and what an outstanding player he was. Raymond Emmett Berry went on to play college football at SMU before being drafted by the Baltimore Colts and became quarterback Johnny Unitas' leading receiver. Gene Stallings' path took him from Paris, Texas to College Station, where he would play for the Texas A&M Aggies. He was recruited by Texas Sports Hall of Fame inductee Gil Stanky, although Stallings points out that TCU and Baylor put together stronger recruiting efforts for him. Stallings' future wife, Ruth Ann, encouraged him to go to Texas A&M. Texas A&M head football coach Ray George was dismissed before Stallings' sophomore year. Stallings and his teammates were about to learn that there was a new sheriff in town. The only thing that we knew in that part of the world was the old Southwest Conference. We didn't know a thing in the world about the Southeastern Conference. And so when they hired this guy named Coach Bryant from Kentucky, didn't any of us know anything about him. It didn't take long for new head coach Bear Bryant to make believers out of the Texas A&M football team. I can remember the first meeting that we had. He was speaking to the cadet corps there on the Grove, a uh, place there on the campus, and uh, he, he made a believer out of all of us that night. Although Coach Bryant made believers out of the Texas A&M Aggies, he did leave out a few details about what was about to happen. Coach Bryant said, won't you 
guys to take a change into the underwear, and uh, we're going to go on a little trip. We didn't have a clue where we were going. Even the bus drivers didn't know. The team found themselves dropped off in Junction, Texas, at a training camp that would become legendary for its extremely difficult workouts and conditions. Stallings gives a glimpse. Now, the facilities were bad. Uh, it was in the middle of a drought. We lived in a Quonson hut. I was a, a sophomore that year, and so I had an upper bunk. It was about two feet from the ceiling, which was a tin ceiling. So it was extremely hot. The practices were held in temperatures that leaped well above the 100-degree mark. Despite the heat, the team wasn't allowed to take water breaks. A lot of people quit. I never gave quitting the thought. It never even entered my mind. Texas Sports Hall of Fame inductee Mickey Herskowitz covered the Junction training camp as a journalist. He noted one thing in particular about Gene Stallings. I was at Junction, and the only writer there that actually stayed there while they were in camp, one of the things I picked up right away was Stallings had an old notepad and stub of a pencil he stuck in the waistband of his football pants. And whenever Coach Ryan would talk about football techniques and things, he'd whip out that pad and write notes. The other guys on the team respected that, but they giggled a little bit at it. But Stallings didn't care. He was going to be a coach, and he wanted to know what Coach Bryant knew. Bryant had been quoted as saying he wanted to separate the quitters from the keepers. By the time training camp was over, many of the players had left the team. Those that remained became part of a famous brotherhood known as the Junction Boys. I'm the guy that really labeled them the Junction Boys, but I don't know what else you would have called them. And Stallings was the guy that had the great line. People asked him how tough it was, and he said, all I know is we went out there in two buses and we came back in one. Stallings often likes to point out that that one bus was only half full. The Aggies finished 1-9 that season. It would be the only losing season in Bear Bryant's illustrious career. Herskowitz remembers the game they did win. The highlight of that season was the Aggies upsetting Georgia at Athens, Georgia. The Aggies are celebrating in the locker room like they'd won the Super Bowl, and their 70-year-old trainer, Smokey Harper, actually danced a jig. Sophomore Gene Stallings scored the touchdown that gave the Aggies the 6-0 victory, but the losses mounted as the season went on. Bear Bryant used a parable from the Bible to give his players hope during the rough season. We were getting ready to play Baylor, I think. And this was a, around midnight. The assistant coaches came around and woke us all up, said Coach Brown won't see the team down in the lobby of, of the athletic dorm where we were living. And so he gave us all a little capsule with a little grain of mustard seed in it. And he read us the parable of the faith of the grain of mustard seed. He said, guys, if y'all just hang in there, I guarantee you that we'll win the championship before you graduate. And he was right. We were a sophomore that year, won one, lost nine. Uh, senior year, we won the championship. The 1956 Texas A&M Aggies went 6-0 and through the Southwest Conference season to win the Southwest Conference championship. They were ranked fifth nationally in the final AP poll. After Stallings' playing days were over, Bear Bryant hired him as an assistant. It was an outstanding four years that I stayed at AM. I played three, and then I coached a freshman my fifth year, and then he went and left and went to Alabama, offered me a job, and I graduated from AM one day and went to Alabama the next only step. 
Bear Bryant built the Alabama football program into a national powerhouse during Gene Stallings' tenure as an assistant. A young man named Leroy Jordan from XL Alabama played for the Crimson Tide. Jordan would go on to have an exceptional career with the Dallas Cowboys and earn a spot in the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Gene Stallings remembers his days at Alabama. Coach Bryant would talk about Leroy and said if they stay in bounds, Leroy will get them. And that's the, that's the confidence that he had in Leroy. In Leroy Jordan's junior year, 1961, Alabama won the national championship, yielding only 25 points all season, including the mere three points they gave up in their Sugar Bowl victory. That team posted five straight shutouts. In 1964, Alabama went undefeated through the regular season and ended at number one in both the AP and UPI polls. They lost to fifth-ranked Texas in the 1965 Orange Bowl. After the season concluded, Gene Stallings was contacted by his alma mater, Texas A&M. They offered the 29-year-old Stallings the head football coach position. They wanted to change and somebody that was affiliated with Coach Bryant. I think that's the reason that they offered me the job, because I'd played for him and I'd coached for him, and they was wanting a little of it to rub off. After getting the A&M job, Stallings hadn't forgotten his roots. He reached out to his high school football coach, Raymond Barry, for guidance. Now, when I got my first head coaching job at Texas A&M, at the age of 29, I invited Coach Barry and Coach Lively to come to College Station and observe me during spring practice for an entire week. I didn't talk to them, but they went to the meetings, they went to the press conferences, uh, they observed practice, they went to my staff meetings, and then at the end of the week, they sort of critiqued me on what I should do, what I was doing right, what I was doing wrong. Uh, that, that's the confidence that I had in Coach Barry. Writer Mickey Herskowitz called Bear Bryant to get a quote about how Bryant felt about Gene Stallings leaving his staff. Coach Bryant was in New York the day I learned that Stallings was going to be the new Aggie coach. And he was at the Waldorf Astoria getting ready for the Heisman dinner. I called to interview him and, of course, got really pure, solid gold Paul Bear Bryant quotes. He said, right now it's hard for me to talk because I'm just blubbering so hard. I'm crying because I'm so proud that one of my own Junction boys is going back to A&M as head coach at the school where Papa coached. The second thing is I'm crying because now that Stallings is going to be going, I have to go back to work. Mickey knew those quotes would make for some excellent reading in his article. A while later, he got some more details on what was happening on the other end of the line. I bumped into an old friend, Bob Curran, who had been a sports columnist, a writer at the Boston Globe, and now was a freelance writer, and he was at that Heisman Trophy dinner, and he knew Coach Bryant, and he came by his suite at the Waldorf Astoria to say hello before the dinner, and he started to walk in, and he stopped right in the doorway, and he looked at where Coach Bryant was sitting behind a table or desk in his suite, and he said, Paul had a real large little tear running down his cheek. Curran turned to Alabama assistant Dude Hennessy and asked why Paul Bear Bryant was crying. And Hennessy, in a real low voice, said, Coach lost one of his assistants. And Curran said, Oh, I'm so sorry. He said, How old was he? And Hennessy said, 29. And Curran slapped his forehead with his hand and said, Oh my God, that 
What a great story. Thank you for sharing that, Mickey. When we return, we'll take a look at Gene Stallings' tenure as a head coach at both Texas A&M and Alabama, as well as his time as an assistant with the Dallas Cowboys and head coach of the NFL's Cardinals. On this edition of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Hampton in Waco North, in the locker room with Gene Stallings. If you've enjoyed listening today, please visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. The museum tells the story of the greatest athletes and coaches in Texas history by using objects from its collection, which numbers over 15,000. And when you come to Waco, be sure and stay at the Hampton Inn Waco North, located just eight minutes from the museum on I-35. The Hampton Inn has recently been renovated and includes free hot breakfast, free Wi-Fi, and an indoor-outdoor pool. And since the Hampton Inn is the official hotel of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, you never know who you might bump into in the lobby. Hey, is that Earl Campbell? And now back to In the Locker Room with Gene Stallings on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn Waco North. Texas A&M hit some tough sledding in Gene Stallings' first year as head coach in 1965. They fell to 2-6 after losing to SMU, then nipped rice on the road. The Aggies were then slated to play Texas on Thanksgiving Day for the final game of the season. Mickey Herskowitz remembers attending one of the practices leading up to the game. Gene Stallings walked up to him and said, Mickey, let's take a ride. Stallings drove them to a spot at the A&M baseball stadium. Stops the car, turns off the ignition, crosses his arms, puts him on the wheel, and puts his head on top of his folded arms. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? I thought his wife maybe had left him. Stallings gave a short, dramatic pause before saying anything. Mickey sat in disbelief. A guaranteed touchdown? How can anyone guarantee a touchdown? Especially against Daryl Royal's Texas Longhorns. The idea on the face of it was just absurd. It, It worked like something out of burlesque. The quarterback bounces the football to a flanker. And the key was it has to look like a forward pass or just a bad pass. But it has to be a lateral. And then they turn around and go back to the huddle and act like they just fouled up. Ideally, under the plan, the defense would believe that the play was over. Only it wasn't. The flanker straightens up and throws the ball as far as he can heave it. And then the wide receiver was up to him to run under it. And Stallings described the play that way and then just said, touchdown. 
It wasn't necessarily that simple though. There was a trick to throwing the ball to make sure that it would bounce properly. You had to grip the ball in the middle of the football, not at the end like you're throwing at a quarterback normally would. And you have to bounce it sideways on the side, not on the tip. And Stalling swore that every time you did that, it bounced right to the flanker back. Okay, so they had that part down. What about throwing the ball downfield? I asked Stalling how many times they had made it work, and he said they hadn't completed one yet, but they thought it would work in the game. And they tried 11 different guys to throw the ball, and they finally found a sophomore named Jim Kaufman, a defensive back and left-handed. He had never played offense in college. And he was the only one that could throw the ball far enough. The plan was to call the play when the Aggies reached midfield. The reason for that was to avoid a safety or a turnover or a big mistake deep in their own territory. There was only one problem with that. Throughout the whole first quarter, the Aggies hadn't reached midfield. The ball was on the 10-yard line, and I see... Kaufman check into the game and Homer Hill Norton who had coached the 1939 national championship team was the one other person that I know of that Stallings had confided in and told him about this weird play they were going to try and as soon as Kaufman checked into the huddle I felt coach Norton's arm squeezing my arm and he said he's going to try it from down there near the end zone and we both were just stunned the a and coaching staff let the officials know before the game that they were going to run the play. And run it they did, from their own 10-yard line. It just worked like magic. The quarterback bounced the ball. Uh, it went right to Kaufman. Some of the players stamped their foot like, darn, we had a chance to make a play there. They all turned their backs on the Texas linemen and moved back to what looked like the huddle. And that was the scary part. A play is still live. All of the linemen had their backs to the Texas linemen. And you can just imagine somebody getting creamed. But Texas fought it. Kaufman summoned all the strength he had in his left arm and heaved the ball downfield. Dude McLean stopped his pass pattern at midfield to catch the ball and then darted towards the end zone. As Gene Stallings predicted, touchdown. A Texas player within 20 yards of it. We ran a sequence photo of that touchdown in the Houston Post the next day, and there was not a Texas player in that sequence of photos. It was just McLean all by himself. Daryl Royal said after the game, somebody asked him what he thought when the ball went up in the air, and Coach Royal said, I immediately thought we have been had. He said McLean was so wide open, it looked like he had come out early for practice. The play became known as the Texas Special, and high school football teams all over the country adopted it into their playbook. The score gave Texas A&M a 7-0 lead. Texas was so shocked that A&M came back and scored another touchdown, moved the length of the field on them, and then just before the half, their place kicker, Randy Sims, a young kid from Houston, kicked a 50-yard field goal. That's how pumped 
Aggies were. So they led at the halftime, 17 to nothing. Texas coach Gerald Royal took his team into the locker room at halftime and wrote 21 to 17 on the chalkboard. He told them that they could score three touchdowns in the second half and win the game. And Texas won it 21 to 17. But after the game, nobody could talk about the win. They could only talk about the Texas special. The Stallings said after the game that night at his press conference, I'd rather have had a sorry old play and won the game. Texas A&M finished Gene Stallings' rookie season as head coach with a 3-7 record. But Stallings had recruited a strong group of players. One of those players was Tommy Maxwell. Tommy would become an All-American defensive back and play for the Baltimore Colts when they won Super Bowl V. As you can imagine, Gene Stallings' practices were as tough as what you might expect from a man who survived Bear Bryant's Junction training camp. But it wasn't just Gene Stallings who had survived Junction. Much of his coaching staff had also been there. We talk about that, you know, about how you all hear a lot about the Junction boys and how tough it was. All but maybe one or two had been with Stallings in, in Junction. So these coaches were all Junction boys. That's what we say. Everybody talks about the Junction boys, but it's like they doubled up on us, you know. And, and we were like this for four years. Tommy takes us into a Texas A&M football practice under Gene Stallings. You know, we had these different mats. There's six mats and three minutes on each mat. There's, I think, about six players on each mat. And there was like a coach or two at each mat in a gym, an old gym at Texas A&M. One of the mats, it was hit the ground, get up, hit the ground, get up, hit the ground, get up, blowing on the whistle, blowing on the whistle. And uh, you do that for three minutes, you can't hardly breathe, okay? Well, you got five more mats. So you go to the next mat, and one of them was called triple roll. It's where you you roll toward each other, but you're jumping over the guy that's coming towards you. So there's six guys, and you're moving the whole time, jumping over each other, and hitting and rolling, jumping, hitting, rolling, and jumping. So three full minutes of that also. Then you run to the next mat. Okay, and then one of those was called a stick fight. You grab a stick, pat it on each end, and you would grab that stick and try to take it away from each other. The logic there was to make sure you found a partner your size. Sometimes you didn't, and you'd get some big lineman, and he'd just throw you around. Three minutes of stick fight, then sprint to the next mat. There's six of those mats, three minutes on each mat. That's 18 minutes. You didn't have any time between them. You ran to the next mat. No rest. Just try doing anything for three minutes full speed, see how you feel. Those drills are just one example of how rigorous Gene Stallings' practices could be. Tommy tells us the coaches showed their own brand of toughness. But you know, the coaches were all tough guys. I can remember Deep Powell one time trying to show a defensive lineman how to shoot the gap on goal line defense, and he just turned his baseball cap around. Then he looks across at the offensive lineman straight across from him, and he said, now, if you don't block me, I'm going to tear you apart. So you better hit me and see if you can stop me. And that offensive lineman whacked him right in the nose. And he got up, and he said, now that's the way you do it. That's the way you do it. And I mean, he had no pass or anything, just went full speed against the offensive line, showing them how to do this. He's sitting there talking to us, no expression, and blood is squirting out his nose. Every time his heart beat, blood squirt out. 
So he's sitting there talking to us very calmly with that blood just spewing out of his nose. Tommy says the toughness of the coaching staff inspired the players to dig deep within themselves. In 1967, Texas A&M lost their first four games. They lost their first four games and Stolings thought he was going to be fired in 1967. And in the fifth game, Ed Hargett, the quarterback, kept the ball in the last play of the game and ran about 19 or 20 yards for the winning touchdown. The team's grit and determination earned them their first win of the season. The question was, could they keep winning? Coach Gene Stallings didn't want to take any chances. Stallings was superstitious, and after that game, when they printed out the team itinerary, which they did for every game they played, home and away, and the night before the game, they go to a movie as a team. The uh, movie they had seen was a Western called Waterhole Number 4. So when the next game came up on the agenda, they put down the movie as Waterhole Number 5. And when they won that game and came up to the next one, it was Waterhole Number 6. And so each movie, even if it was gone with the wind, was described as Waterhole Number 7, 8, 9. They won seven games in a row to come from nowhere to win the Southwest Conference Championship. Winning the Southwest Conference earned them a berth in the Cotton Bowl, where they would face Bear Bryant's Alabama Crimson Tide. Coach Stallings says there was one main reason why he was excited to be playing Alabama. First of all, I wanted to play against Alabama because I wanted my players to be exposed to Coach Bryant. In those days, both teams would do things together from time to time. The players had heard me talk about Coach Bryant, so I wanted the players to be exposed to Coach Bryant. Texas A&M upset Alabama 20-16 in the 1968 Cotton Bowl. After the game, Bear Bryant picked up his junction boy protege, Gene Stallings, and carried him around the field for a moment. I was extremely surprised. I, you know, I'd walk over and I'd go coach. I'd shake hands with Coach Bryant, and he just reached out and picked me up. And he told me later on, said everybody thought I was trying to pick him. I was trying to turn you over and bash your head in the ground. Obviously, just kidding. Bryant provided Stallings with another surprise during the press conference. I was in the middle of the press conference, and somebody knocked on the door. It's Coach Bryant. Well, the manager wasn't going to keep Coach Bryant from coming in. So anyway, he, he came in, and I looked at him, and I said, Coach, are you looking for me? He said, no. He said, I've seen enough of you. I want to see your players. So I got the players together, and Coach Bryant talked to them and said he just wanted to congratulate the A&M players the way they performed in that particular game. Just shows the magnitude, really, of Coach Bryant. Despite winning the Southwest Conference and the Cotton Bowl, the head coaching job at Texas A&M remained a difficult one. The Texas A&M job was an extremely hard job. It was during the Vietnam War. People had to make a commitment to the military, and not a lot of people wanted to make a commitment to the military. For one year, my three preseason games was LSU and Baton Rouge, Ohio State and Columbus, University of Michigan and Ann Arbor. And it was like that nearly every year. So I'm saying that to say this, win-loss records are not the same. In 1971, Texas A&M finished 5-6 and six under Gene Stallings. That more than doubled their win total from the previous season when they had played that difficult non-conference schedule against LSU, Ohio State, and Michigan. 
Stallings met with the Texas A&M Board of Regents after the 1971 season concluded. When the Board of Regents called me in, I thought they were going to call me and give me a raise. I thought I'd done a pretty good job with what I had, but they ended up firing me. I was sort of devastated and was fixing to get out of coaching. Coach Bryant called Coach Landry. Bear Bryant told Tom Landry that one of the best coaches in the country was contemplating quitting coaching. Tom Landry interviewed Gene Stallings and offered him a job coaching the secondary. Stallings worked for 14 years for Coach Landry and the Dallas Cowboys. He said at first, he had to learn the ropes of coaching the pro game. If you play professional football, then a pro has a tendency to listen to what you have to say. Not only I've never played pro ball, but I got fired from coaching college football. I had to prove my worth. I had to convince the player that I knew what I was talking about and uh, coaching the same style that I always coached in. And what, what a great 14 years it was, but at the beginning, I didn't know much about man-to-man pass defense. I'd study Mel Renfro. He was as good a man-to-man player, I guess, as ever played. And I'd study the way he played it. And if I knew a little something about coaching man-to-man, so that's where I got my start. Dallas Cowboys safety and Texas Sports Hall of Famer Cliff Harris says that Stallings' ability to communicate the details was one of his strengths. He would say things like, well, Cliff, now are you paying attention here to me? When he would say something like that, you knew it was something that was important for him. He'd say, now, this is just a little thing, but I want you to pay attention here. Now are you paying attention? So he'd get your attention, and he would implant the significant things that he wanted you to pay attention to and know and do during the game, and they stuck in your head and made us all better players. Harris adds that Stallings did an excellent job of communicating the big picture as well. Gene was his best at trying to get the big picture to you and helping us to understand our specific role and how it fit with the guy we were working with. Stallings worked for the Cowboys through some of their most glorious seasons, including a victory in Super Bowl XII and appearances in Super Bowls X and XIII. Stallings keeps fond memories of the players he coached. All of these guys were not only good players, but they were superhuman beings. The great majority of them that I coached were free agents. That means that they were not drafted. So uh, I took a lot of pride in the fact that, that we built a good secondary around guys that were primarily free agents and had been drafted. In 1986, Coach Stallings was hired as head coach of the St. Louis Cardinals. The team moved to Phoenix during his tenure and are now known as the Arizona Cardinals. His first game as a head coach was the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio. His Cardinals played the New England Patriots, who were coached by another Paris, Texas native, former Colts superstar Raymond Barry. The town of Paris, Texas was proud of the man whom they still called Raymond Emmett and Stallings to whom they referred to as his childhood nickname, Beebs. You know, the halftime is for the Hall of Fame inductees. And the uh, people in Paris wanted to recognize Raymond and I, and they kept saying, well, you don't understand, said uh, Raymond Nemeth and Beebs are from the same hometown, and we want to recognize him. And they said, no, you're the one don't understand. This is a Hall of Fame, and, and we recognize the people that's going into the Hall. So it was... It was sort of fun. They still recognize us, but not out in the middle of the field over on the side.
The Bidwill family has owned the Cardinals since the 1930s. Stallings' tenure with the Cardinals ended in 1989. It was my job to please Mr. Bethel. It was not Mr. Bethel's job to please me. I understand that. I had a hard time pleasing Mr. Bethel. I tried to do everything I could to please him. Uh, the bottom line, we had, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 players on injured reserve. We were still 5-5. Five and five. The people in Phoenix kept writing and wanting to know when they were going to renew my contract. So Mr. Bethel said he wanted to see me coach one more game. Well, I worked for him, and it's going on four years, so... It was obvious to me that he wanted somebody else to be his coach. So I just called a press conference and I said, now when the season is over, I'm no longer a candidate for this job. All I want to do is get the Cardinals in the playoffs. We've got six games to play. I think we can make the playoffs. This will give him plenty of time to find who he wants. Anyway, he fired me the next day and the Cardinals lost six in a row. You've likely heard the saying, when one door closes, Another door opens. I didn't think that I'd ever have an opportunity to go back to Alabama and talk to the people at Navy about the Navy job. And then I, I turned on television to see where the Alabama job became available. And Uli uh, Ingram and I were, were friends, and he was the athletic director, and, and he gave me the job, which I'm most appreciative of. Stallings' tenure as head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide got off to a bit of a rough start. We lost the first three games in a row. Now, we didn't play all that bad. We just lost. People would ask me, did I have any advice for the new coach at Alabama? And I'd say, yeah, don't start off the way I did. A big win against Tennessee that year turned the program around immediately. Alabama went undefeated in the 1992 season and faced the undefeated Miami Hurricanes in the Sugar Bowl. Miami had finished the previous season ranked number one in the AP poll, and most people predicted the Hurricanes would win. We were playing Miami in the national championship game, and anybody that would listen, I would tell them that we had the best football team. We led the nation in three or four categories defensively. Offensively, we could run the football. We had a good kicking game. Miami was a good football team, too. They just hadn't played Alabama. Alabama trounced Miami 34-13 to win the national championship. The win put Stallings on the elite list of coaches who have won national championships. Although championships are great, Stallings found a greater joy as a father of a child with special needs. And what a joy Johnny was. I didn't think so when he was first born. Felt like it was the worst thing that ever happened to me, but it turned out to be the best. My life wouldn't have been nearly as rich. It wasn't for the fact that uh, he appraised a child that had special needs. They told Beebs that he would not make it past his third year, and he lived to be 50, and he was one of the managers that every football team Gene coached, and the players just loved him. I gave Johnny a jersey because he was fans of Charlie Waters and mine, so I gave him a jersey for his birthday that had a 43 on the front and a 41 on the back. Johnny wasn't just popular with the players. He touched the lives of all the people around him. Well, we were getting ready to play the last game that I coached. Uh, we had played uh, Michigan in one of the bowls down in Florida. And I got on the bus and I told Gerald Jack, I said, Gerald, I'm hot and tired. I'm ready to get the football team to the hotel. The bus didn't move. And I said, Gerald, I said, I'm ready to get the football team to the hotel. And the bus didn't move. And I said, Gerald, what's the problem? And he said, you want to know what the problem is? And 
I said, yeah, I won't know what the problem is. He said, Johnny, signing autographs. What a joy it was. Love the players, love the trainers, the managers. And I can't tell you how many things have been named after Johnny. I mean, as long as they play football in Alabama, uh, the equipment room is named after Johnny. Falcon University named their football playing field after Johnny. And uh, I can't tell you how many playgrounds uh, for the special needs is named after Johnny. He was an honorary Marine, and it just goes on and on and on. So he was a real joy. Gene Stallings was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in 1996. He tells us what the honor means to him. I'm extremely pleased to be in the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Was, when I went in, it wasn't nearly as big a deal as it is now. I was just another player. I want to be a good player. I was not a good player. You win football games with football players, and I was blessed with having good football players and had a good run at it, a good career. And when they put me in the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, I just can't tell you how excited I was. The legacies of great football coaches stretch beyond winning percentages. When you ask people about Gene Stallings, they don't talk about the game in their answers. I love Coach Stallings. The guys that stayed there, uh, when they get together, we all talk about how, you know, Coach Stallings was tough, but he taught us that we could do a lot more than we thought we could do. I try to pattern myself like Gene Stallings because Gene says the one thing is this. I say, Gene, what should I do in this situation? He would say, Cliff, do the right thing. And I said, what is that right thing, Gene? He said, you know what the right thing is to do. And man, that just echoed in my mind for forever and even today because I know that uh, he's a man that backs up his words with action and and doing the right thing is something he does and and I will always be grateful for the gifts not only in football but as a a man uh, that he gave to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast In the Locker Room with Gene Stallings Presented by the Hampton Inn Waco North. When you visit Waco, Texas and the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, your best bet is to book your stay at the Hampton Inn Waco North.